Welcome to this episode of the Magazine Debrief podcast. Uh, this week, we're looking at the 5th of March uh, edition of the magazine, which is on the, well, not quite the eve, but two days before schools att- attempt to return to some sort of norm- normality, which we know um, won't be normal for some time yet. Uh, I'm joined by Gwanya Hallahan. Hi, Gwanya. Hello. And Dan Worth. Hello, Dan. Hi there. And let's get started. Okay, so as I mentioned, we are on the cusp of a return to school. And if you believe the government hype, and if you believe all the noise, it is the start of the great catch-up expedition. You know, we will not rest. Every stone will not be unturned. Uh, Oh, yes, not be unturned. That's the phrase, right? Yes, it is. No stone left unturned. That's the one, Dan. It's very early in the morning. It is early. Um, And, and, you know, the, the, the... insistence is that the next few months are going to be this intense catch-up period and the the phrase catch-up sort of suggests you know this will just be a bit of bit of work and everything will be all right again but we know that's not the case i mean but we know there's a lot of pressure for that to happen so we set zofia a task to to look at catch-up and to look at the evidence and uh gonya you caught up with her i did with zofia niemtis very well pronounced thank you i think I hope. I hope. You can't be always saying, having a go at us for pronouncing your name wrong and then pronounce someone else's name wrong. Well, I thought I'd make the point of saying her full name because you said Sophia. Yeah, sorry. But 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 that's how how well known she is. It's just one name, just Sophia. Even to me, she's just Zoff. Yeah. Just, you know. (laughs) The mysterious Z. Yeah, exactly. When I saw that Sophia had done this piece, I obviously jumped to the chance to interview her to speak to her about her thoughts on everything that she found out, and you can listen to our catch-up here. Thanks for joining me, Zofia. You are Interim Deputy Commissioning Editor at TES, and you are also our cover writer for this week's issue. And you've written all about... I don't, I don't know if I dare say the words, really. You, you've written about catch-up. It's almost like a swear word. It was like a swear word that we're all saying all the time at the minute but yeah it's it's already becoming a bit of a dirty word so tell us about what you've written about in, in this week's tears so the feature this week is all about the idea of catch-up and if the very notion is just a bit of a lie and the piece looks at that big question of what is catch-up and then it looks at some catch-ups that we've had in the past that did not work and then some ideas for what might work in the future See, it sounds like a really super helpful feature considering we are all thinking now about the return and how we're going to bridge that gap for students between where we thought they would be ordinarily at this time in the year and where they are in reality. It's a great feature. I really enjoyed reading it. And particularly, I think when I got to the the part where you interviewed Becky Francis, I was like punching my arm in the air like, yes, yes, this is exactly it. Because... She makes the point that just calling it catch-up isn't a great idea. Yeah, it's also, even like the definition of the word catch-up is really problematic because it's like, what are we catching them up to? Is it to where they would have been? Is it to where most people are? Is it to, yeah, like there's loads of different places. There's loads of different answers to that question. And it's like an inherently negative term right if you need to catch up to something that implies that you're behind so it's like we're starting these kids off after a really difficult year anyway with this kind of negative term 
And words matter. The way that we label ourselves and the way that we label our, the children in school, it does make a difference, doesn't it? Totally, yeah. And I think what Becky says in the piece that really struck a chord with me was that, that phrase, catch up, has this kind of like sticking plaster um, quality to it. So it implies, oh, you've just fallen a bit behind and like, don't worry, we'll, we'll give you a bit more learning and then you'll be fine. So there's a bit in the piece um, with the analogy of a wall looking at learning as this process of building a wall and then catch up being this idea of having a hole in the wall and just having a few extra bricks that we can push in and then it's all sorted. Um, when actually that isn't how walls work or how learning works. Like it just isn't, that's not what's going to happen. And that's exactly it. And when we look at these children and what they've been through at home and how the, the difference between their experiences during lockdown is just so so dramatically different and what they're all coming back to school feeling and having done it's not just oh look just plug that gap I'll stick this in there and we'll all be all be fine again it's uh yeah but it's a it's a great feature everyone go and read it and thank you for talking to me today's off thank you okay so what do we think about catch up after that interview and after reading the piece I mean I've written in my leaders about the fact that I don't like the phrase for a start. And we've had an insistence from Kevin Collins that he's a recovery, Sir Kevin Collins, sorry, that he's a recovery commissioner. He's not a catch-up czar. Um, and he's very keen on this idea of recovery and for that this to be a long-term solution. This is not the next three months. This is this will be years and years. And in the piece, uh, Becky Francis, chief executive of the EEF, calls it mitigation and says, actually, we're not going to know where these gaps are till, you know, years in the future. And again, we need to make sure there's access there. I'm not sure that message is getting through to the wider public. I don't know about you two. I can say that amongst my my non-teacher parent friends, they're of this sort of opinion that they'll go back and that will be a bit intense for a bit and then they'll be right back where they were meant to be. And I just, you know, I've, I've worked in schools, I've been around young children for years and years and years of my career. And if it was that easy just to catch people up and they've missed stuff, then we would have done that in the first place. It's, mm. it's a complicated thing and we're not, we're not sure where the gaps will be and what the problems will, what, what the problems will look like until those children are back in the classroom. Yes, it's very, um, it's such a complex thing. And there's no question that it needs to be talked about and thought about. And But if, like everything we do in this, in, in the modern world, it's so simplistic and it's so sort of like, there's no sense of let's understand the nuance or let's have a wider debate. And obviously the good thing about what we do at TES is we do have that wider debate. And, you know, this piece shows that, conversation we just heard shows that. And like, I recently wrote a piece about why it's so important that schools don't just go back and day one hit children with, you know, 100 miles an hour of lessons and homework. And, oh, we've got to catch up on the, on the stress and the, and because no one needs that and pupils don't need that and, and teachers don't need that and it's like coming back from your first day of work after a two-week holiday you know if you arrive back monday morning and everyone just threw loads of work at you you no one could cope with that you need time to come back in and that's what research shows as well and interestingly in america they did some research i wrote about in the piece that i did recently about why socialization is so important and it showed that children that come back and seem to have lost the most after summer then subsequently catch up the quickest because they just had time to settle into school. And that time period, that few days of just socialization, getting back into routine and all that matters a lot. And if we go back on day one and teachers kind of set tests and, you know, immediately they're like, oh, I know all my pupils are miles behind and I've got to hurry them along. 
that won't help anyone. And actually, a few days of how are, how are you all? How have you found the last two months? Yes, it was difficult. I myself struggled, you know, but it's nice to be back, isn't it? And here are the new routines. That's so important. And of course, in the wider public, that discourse is just not had really. You know, I have sympathy for schools. I know that they're they're keen to get data on the ch- on the children that they've they've they're not sure about the assessments they've been con- conducting over lockdown and how reliable that data is. But returning to school and instantly setting exams, and even in some cases, I've heard about um, letting children go off on study leave. So they're coming back and they're going to have exams. And during that time, when you're testing and assessing, you're not teaching. I think there's also like a conceptual problem that Rob Webster picks up is what are you behind on? Like, you know, are we talking about content? Have you missed the Tudors? You've missed your term on space or you've missed your term on the Tudors. And it's just a matter of brushing up on your Tudor Kings. And and I think Michael Tidd makes a really good point on Twitter where he said, it's not really the content, it's the mortar between. And and especially with this Ofsted emphasis on this, this sort of uh, cumulative curriculum where we build on skills each year and, and you know, you're sort of reworking subtle, subtle areas of knowledge and building on it. Actually, th- this simplistic idea of building bricks of content that are missing is not right. As, as Michael says, it's the mortar between, and that's much harder to find and much harder to fix. And I think, you know, as you say, Dan, that I, I think about my kids each time we've, you know, we've gone into lockdown and how far, long it's taken to readjust to learning from home. And it could be argued by my neighbours that my kids have never adjusted by the noise that comes from my house daily. But there, there's, a, there's a settling in period and there's a, there's a learning of what this means to be in this environment and what learning means in a home environment. And they're going to have to relearn what learning means in a school environment, what, you know, the, the, the sort of habits they've got into won't necessarily be, be appropriate in the classroom mm. you know well a head teacher made the point to me recently like, like primary pupils I and mean, for some of them it'll be learning to you know um detach from their family unit again and that will actually you know, that that big transitional moment they'll have to do it again and if you think someone else made the point to me recently which i thought was a really good point which i hadn't really thought about but it's like for year i think it's for year eight pupils they haven't had a normal year yet at secondary school so that and they'll be in year nine by september so the idea i mean Secondary school is huge, right? If you're in your second year of secondary school, you haven't had a full year, you haven't made your, you're maybe not feeling very settled there. You still miss primary, you're a bit older, but you're not quite sure. Yeah, coming back and then being dumped with those of schoolwork and being told, yes, you don't know about the Tudors and you must know about the Tudors must be really difficult. And actually time just to kind of make some friends again and get to know your school layout, where everything is, which are the loos that I'm, you know, allowed to use and the older girls won't, boys won't tell me off. You know, I just think all those things are so integral to what school is. And that point from Michael Tidd is so right, isn't it? Because if you don't know about the Tudors, that's not going to hold you back in life. But if you don't know how to learn about something, which is what, in some ways, what education is, it's learning how to learn or learning how to apply a skill, not your knowledge of the Tudors in everyday life. That's what we need to pick up on. And I feel like that can be, that is where the catch up will work. And that will take time, though. It won't take place in the first week back. They, you're right. They've missed really big, significant moments that build your self-confidence as well. Things like they've missed sports day. They've missed end of term productions. They've missed the chance to audition for the school play. They've missed trying out for the netball team. All these little tiny things that happen over the course of the year, they haven't had a chance to do. And in the piece that I've, I've been writing for the, the mag in a few weeks about the trainee teachers, the trainee teachers have missed seeing how the school operates during those 
those um those moments that they're not on the the teacher training program they're not things that you would think are particularly important on the school calendar but they're things that you need to see how a school operates when they're running them because that's a huge part of being a teacher yeah and i think you know it's easy to forget that all these kids have missed their swimming lessons outside of school their part runs their ballet classes you know it's it's been a total lockdown of their out of family experience and as you said dan like you know, for reception kids, they had this big transition and then some a lot of interruption. And I think there will there would be tears probably on from parents and kids on, on Monday of kids that are that age. And and I think, yeah, the socialization point. And it's really encouraging, by the way, to see um I think Ed Finch ran a and a Twitter thread or prompted a Twitter thread where he said, What are we doing first week back? And there's some amazing ideas about reintegration and I think the sad thing is that they were mainly centred around primary and I think secondary uh, schools are going to have to take this as seriously. Yeah, um, we, had, we did have a piece this week, though, from a teacher talking about how they're going for secondary, talking about how they're going to help pupils sort of make friendships again and, and acknowledges that that's not something that, you know, normally adults trying to make friends between children doesn't work. And she's not saying that. She's, it's more like time to have discussions in the form you can sort of prompt chats among small groups and things like that. And I thought that was such a good point because it shows, I, th- I think most teachers fundamentally do know this and, and know that the socialization and they, you know, that's what they do or they spend time with children. They see those connections are so important, but when this is narrative of catch up, catch up, catch up is coming down on top and the disaster that awaits if we don't catch up, like with those slightly unhelpful 40,000 pounds in lost learning stories as well, which are not as true as they sound when you delve into them. All that it's a it's an awkward situation, is it? But I'm I you know, teachers will do what they've always done and step up. So do read that piece. As you can tell, it's gonna prompt some debate in your staff room, debate uh, among your you and your parent friends, and um hopefully we can get the message that Kevin is Kevin Collins is trying to put across, which is that this is long term, let's not rush it. And and as Becky says in the piece, Becky Francis says, This isn't a sprint, let's just take our time and let's get it right. Um, so yeah interested in hear your thoughts in, in future weeks as, as we get back to school okay feature two now we're going to have to be a little bit careful aren't we here guys with feature two because we're talking sociopaths and psychopaths and you know on the face of it talking about those those two uh, personality traits and schools is a dangerous thing to do because we are not suggesting that teachers are psychopaths or sociopaths to the fullest degree. We are talking about sociopathic and psychopathic traits among normally functioning human beings. Have I done that carefully enough, Gonya and Dan? Um, yes, I think you have. I think, I think it's the, the piece outlines, doesn't it, that in, given the percentage of people with these traits in society... It's natural that within any profession, let alone you know, teaching, whatever it will be, there will be people with these traits. And it's, I think, you know, broadly, they, even if they do, we all kind of have, we're all on a spectrum for everything, aren't we? So we probably all have, we might, you might read this feature and think, oh, I'm a bit like this, I'm a bit like that. And, but it's probably not a problem. It's when it manifests too far that it becomes, they become problematic. And then, and, and I mean, to be honest, we, schools are great places for great people, but let's not kill us also. Like they probably do draw people in who are, you know, bullies and, and, you know, self-aggrandizing and all these things. But like any profession, that's not teaching. It's the same with business, it's the same with medicine, it's the same with, you know, higher education, whatever it might be. It's people like that end up everywhere and it's knowing how to spot them and get away from them, I suppose, that's that's important. The funny thing about this feature is the, the neuroscientist involved 
was was studying psychopaths and sociopaths and and then recognized that he might be one mm. and and it's such a nice turn in the feature that john does how john does it is that it's like yeah these are the traits and oh yeah but this guy this, this guy recognized himself in it and not to a degree where it was um yeah he, he he's he's not in jail for a start um but he does emphasize that actually if you can recognize that you have some sociopathic or psychopathic tendencies um then you can begin to address those so for example you know he i think the phrase in the piece is lording it over others um he uses and and he recognized that he was actually being quite nasty but unintentionally um disruptive to others and recognizing that that meant that he could deal with it and he said because psychopathy and sociopathy this is really hard for someone from Portsmouth because I don't say my THs properly so forgive me in advance um I, I could try but I'll just end up spitting all over the microphone um but you know these these traits if if because they're so sort of associated with murder and really nasty things so we don't discuss it um, and because of that we don't actually address some of the light versions of those traits. Go on, you've been quiet so far. You're making me and Dan sound like we're calling out the profession while you sit smiling. <laughs> I find um, the, the the idea of... I, I find psychopaths like, fascinating. I've got a friend from school who... I'm did now a- worried about Pat. Like your husband. <laughs> she did her whole PhD on psychopaths and she works for a prison. And I love talking to Kate about it. I find it really interesting. Um, you know, The Psychopath Test by John Watson. Yeah. Brilliant um, podcast on This American Life about the psychopath test as well, I should mention. Yes. And um, and when I got to do the apologies piece, I looked. I spoke to a, a couple of um, psychiatrists about psychopathy but there was, that, that was when we think about children of course you can't call children psychopaths you can't call anybody a psychopath until they're over 25 is that right yeah yeah because your brain hasn't developed the and it and you don't call people psychopaths you say that they have psychopathic tendencies but you can't diagnose that until you're over 25 so even like when we are talking about this we should never think about people who are under the age of 25 because your brain is still developing and that's important to remember. But I love all the, um, you know, the the train problem with the people on the track. And would, like, would you pull the lever to divert it to kill like just two people, one person, rather than, and, but that one person's your son. And the idea that psychopaths can give either answer, but it's the reasons behind their answer that tells you whether or not they're a psychopath. I find it fascinating that sociopaths have guilt so they know they're doing it wrong and do it anyway whereas the psychopaths don't recognize the wrong in what they're doing which makes me think sociopaths are worse i don't i don't yeah. i don't know like to know it's wrong and do it anyway seems worse than mm. i don't it's it's, it's, one of those things it's very me. complicated isn't it that because it's like and, and what is just someone having a bad day and being a bit of an idiot or you know which we all do we're all guilty of that mm. but and then doing it, like say, manipulatively long-term, a pattern of behaviour that starts to become something you spot, and, and it's problematic. And as as regulars, you know, I think I did work with someone a bit like that. And I, once I saw it, then it became a problem for me because I couldn't stop seeing it and all the problems. And I was preempting the issue, and it came up, and and then it was very, very stressful, very, very stressful place to work. I think is it, one of the things that we've got to be careful of. I guess is that 
you know, we, you know, it's common to call your boss, boss a psychopath or mm. a sociopath or colleagues that. And it's a bit like saying someone's a bit OCD or someone's a bit autistic. And they've become these sort of common, sort of slightly banterish sometimes, slightly not, slightly nasty other times. But in both uses, it's a... It's a sort of dilution of what is actually a serious condition or a serious problem or a challenge. And I think, you know, with autism and OCD especially, it's quite insulting to autistic people or people with OCD to say, oh, he's a bit OCD. Because mm. it sort of, it damages the overall perception. Are, are we in danger of doing something similar with psychopathy or sociopathy? <laughs> And sometimes somebody can be behaving really erratically and you can attribute that to sort of like psychopathic behaviour because it doesn't make any sense and they don't seem to be registering any like emotions of those around them. But that's because they're actually having mental health issues that have got nothing to do with that. They're just having a breakdown. But you can, because you're not trained in, in mental health, you might read that as something else and it's it's dangerous to bandy those terms around when you don't actually know yeah story. that's that's true i think this is where it gets very complicated isn't it because if you're in a work situation and someone around you is displaying these tendencies and it's making your particularly it's making your life or lives of people you work with and you you like you know problematic it's not your job to sort of learn to manage their problem like you should it, that should be dealt with externally or elsewhere within the organization but when mm -hmm. it starts affecting the people around them but they're sort of unable to do anything about it and they sort of and they don't understand it because it's not why they're there they're there to be a teacher or whatever it is they're there to do they're not there to sort of self to diagnose someone else and go, i understand that person's got this problem therefore i need to do this to help mitigate this like there's a problem going on over there and it needs to be sorted and it shouldn't be affecting my job um and i think that's really because you say people go oh don't worry about him he's just he's just a, he's a bloody psychopath but it's like well actually no but is it you saying that's a joke but actually yeah you're right he's causing a problem mm -hmm. like people are unhappy and they leave and you know, yes. they leave very quickly within joining the company. Why don't no one seems to spot that and deal with it? But, but surely someone should, but they don't. That's the trouble is that we don't really have to deal with this as a society because these people are so like outliers to our to the usual pool of people we interact with. And do you know what else? It's the structure of schools. It's that hierarchy mm. and that the the appeal to have power and to have power over other, other people is like that's in, built into that school structure, isn't it? Mm. And when somebody does rise to a certain level, then the the way that you can raise those issues or criticise that person, it, it is not taking them seriously if they're above you in that chain of command. Yeah. Well, that's when it becomes incumbent on the person above them yes. to listen yeah. to it. And that's, again, without getting too much detail, my attempts to do that, to raise it higher up the chain of command, which I felt was the right course of action, were completely ignored effectively and, and sort of, you know, told, oh, there's, no, there's not a problem there or... It was hard to explain, but it was it was not dealt with, and that's why eventually I I left where I was because it was clear it wasn't going to get sorted out in the way it should have been, which isn't good. That's not a good outcome of that story, but it's what it's what I had to do. And sometimes um, those people rise so high up in the organisation, there's very few people above them yes, to actually do anything yeah, about it. Absolutely, and yeah. Those those people don't actually have they well, don't very, see the day to day, do they? No, and they're very good at what they're very good at. These people, I find, I think, is they're very good at. For the people they need to please or keep on side, they can do that yes. very well. And I think that's probably this is a sociopath is, is able to, because they, they know the social structures where I, they need to sort of be nice and they know where they can get away with not being nice. And they, they're very good at playing that game. And so every, to a lot of people, like, really? Is, I thought he seemed perfectly mm -hmm. nice to me. And then when you say no, they're like, well, I haven't seen that. So therefore I'm unable to help you or such, such thing. And it's like, well, that's quite clever, isn't it? That's manipulation of two two sides. I think that's the thing with, I mean, we get a lot of comments on social media 
where people say, can you look at bullying in schools? Can you look at bullying in schools? And we've done it a few times. And it, it's it's sad to see because you think that schools are such a, vo- you know, such a vocational profession teaching that you shouldn't get... Um, um, you shouldn't get problems like that in schools, but you do because it's a, it's just a smaller reflection of society, and and some of that is because you do have people with psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies, and that's why this article is really trying to explore, you know, away from the sort of um, sensationalism of of the terms, and I mean, mm. they shouldn't be sensationalist, but they have become that way. Is a piece that really talks about how can we how can we have a school and working environment that's that's more conducive to people's well be good well being on and mental health. And I think in that sense it's a really important one for school leaders to recognise perhaps tendencies in themselves or other members of their senior teams, but also for classroom teachers to read it and say, do I recognise this in others or myself? And and perhaps to, you know, put that article in front of someone who needs to read it. If that's not too controversial. Okay, so feature three. We're going to do something a little bit different. Every week in the magazine, we have a Q and A. Um, one week it is the is someone from the world of education, and the other week it's it's a sort of digested version of the podcast Dan does, which is the My Best Teacher podcast. And um, so we've had some great people from both sides of that. But this, today we really wanted to discuss this week's. Q&A, didn't we, Yes, which is with the leading of Kaiser Chiefs, Ricky Wilson. Famous for I Predict a Riot and Ruby and songs like that. And he's also a guest, uh, he's also a judge on The Voice. And he's got his own new art show out on CBBC. So I suspect quite a lot of listeners will end up seeing that with their people It'll become the new, um, the new one that the parents like to watch, won't he? Because it would be it'd be the one that the dads will watch because it's a bit cool because he was in Kaiser Chiefs so it's okay. yeah exactly so, yeah you know yeah. it's like um with the Brian Blessed episodes of Peppa Pig yeah. <laughs> you know you see on Twitter and there's loads of dads go oh yeah, yeah I like the Brian you know the the Grampy Rabbit one well you can you can like the other ones as well it's fine you don't have to dislike <laughs> it because because Brian Blessed's in one of them and there's this weird thing about you know and there's this really horrible I'm sure you've experienced it Ganya where oh you might you know the mums will like this one because there's someone... A bit, I mean, I find that so patronising. Oh, when know. Tom Hardy's putting anything and, the, and everyone goes like, oh, it's Tom Hardy, like as <laughs> if it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're not a Tom Hardy fan, is it? Are we here, here, well, he's never going to come on your podcast now, Dan. Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I didn't say anything bad about him. I like him. ruined that. Tom Hardy's like not him. coming on. Just, as long, well, as long as he doesn't listen to this podcast, I mean, Tom Hardy, if you're listening, let us know. But if he, as long as he's not listening, then we're fine. And no one tell him. No one tell him on. I'm Twitter defending the objectification of Tom Hardy. Yeah, yeah in fact, to be fair, you were you were just defending him, so it's fine. Well, it's in not, a way, not even I a guess. problem. We, we've really not. <laughs> we've gone way off topic. Here. Yeah, sorry. What the idea of talking? What we're about we talking this about again? <laughs> was because um, Ricky said some really interesting things about his school days, and we thought it'd be interesting for us to discuss that and share our own experiences, and also um, just offer it out to our listeners as well. So, well, what I liked about him was that he took you think being coming becoming the lead singer of a rock and roll band, you know, and how sort of, you know, bold you have to be to do that, to take the microphone in front of a group of other blokes playing the guitars, you know, stand in front of a huge crowd and sing words you've written down. I mean, I, think, I can't think of anything more confidence requiring. Um, but I, I asked him, you know, also, were you a bit of a terror? Were you always a bit showy off, you know, rock and roller at school? And he says, no, he says, I was, I was always quiet. I liked being in the middle. I didn't want to be seen. I was not too short, not too tall, not too neat, not too messy. 
And he sounds like he was this very sort of, not that he wasn't a little bit outgoing and he did, he did things, you know, he sort of performed in, as a conductor in a school choir in one of his earlier years and things like that. So he wasn't a complete sort of wallflower, but he wasn't a kind of chaotic, you know, oh, and the teacher's thinking, oh, he's a nightmare, that one. <laughs> and I just really like that because I thought there must be so many, and I said to him, said, your teachers must have looked when they saw you on the, you know, fronting a band on stage at big festivals and thought, is that the same kid in my class? And he said, yeah, they probably did because, you know, we all change so much as we get older. I just thought it was a nice one and maybe maybe relevant now that, you know, pupils can seem one thing and be one thing at their age of 12 or 14, but by the time they're 21, they're changed. But school will play out a role in that development, even if it doesn't seem obvious at the time. I think one of the things that struck me was that he was talking about wanting to not be the top of any of the groups and not wanting to be the bottom. So he could be largely, you know, left alone. And one of the things that strikes me going into schools now is that there's so much more of a culture where being the bright kid is okay. And, you know, my memory of school, and if any of my friends are listening, they may remember it differently, but you didn't want to be like the geeky kid. You didn't want to be, you know, top of all the groups and, you know, the one everyone looked to. You wanted to be somewhere sort of near or slightly less, but you didn't. you definitely didn't want to be that sort of... 10 11 a star student and now i go into schools and i feel like that stigma sort of gone i don't know if that's right or, or wrong but certainly it's hard to gauge when you go into a school for a day and talk to the kids but certainly it doesn't seem as bad they, they they're proud of you being know, that person i think it really depends on the school i've taught in schools where it was really cool to be the cleverest and they're very competitive and there was the sort of culture that being and schools generally where they streamed I think whether the school streams or not, that really plays into it because the children in your class then become your friends. And if then you're in, you're in the top set, it's very cool to be the top of the top set. And you, there's, a, there's a horrible st- stigma about being moved down. And that's awful. And then I've taught in other schools where they have had different systems and it's been different sort of children. And it is very, very, it was, there was attached amount to sort of social out, like being cast out if you were, if you did well in tests and having been praised in class would have been just mortifying, but you had to do everything really secretly and be like, well done. <laughs> so, yeah. I remember Mr. Watts said to me, uh, like came over and said, John, you know, uh, I showed your story you wrote to Mrs. Whelan, which is actually one of my friend's mums. And he, and, and I don't think she ever knows this story. So if, if my friend actually tells her, this would be quite sad. Uh, but Mr. Watts came in and said, I show Mrs. Whelan, she thinks it's a really good story and I'd like you to go and get it and then from her and then read it to the class. And I just looked at him and this was year nine. I said, I'm not, I can't do that. I, I'm not going to do that. And he said, no, no, you, ha- you have to do it. And we had a little argument. Then he sent me. So I just walked around the school for 20 minutes randomly, not looking for Mrs. Whelan because I definitely did not want to read it. Managed to get about five minutes before the bell and came back and just said, couldn't, couldn't find Mrs. Whelan. Sorry, <laughs> Mr. Watts. So she must be out on the across country field or something like that. And it was just like the most mortifying thing to put your head above the parapet and, 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 and showcase something you've done. And yet I go into schools now and, and as, you, as you say, it might be the sort of schools I go into, but you know, these kids are like, has anyone got a question for the visitor? Yeah. Why do you lie as a journalist? You know, <laughs> there's people, these kids are so confident and so like well articulated, you know, really well articulated in their in their questioning and you think wow so time's moved on 
Um, but that maybe that says more about me and and Ricky Wilson than it does the reality. No, I, I think know. I think you're right. It's, I went I went to a quite a competitive school, and doing well was certainly a good thing. But there was a slight line between doing well and whilst not looking like you were not not trying, but just the, the way you carried yourself. There were kids who got were incredibly smart, but they looked smart and they acted smart and they weren't liked. And there were kids that were very smart, but they were kind of cool enough with it. And doing and not doing well was not good. You know, it generally was people were, you know, mocked as we should, you know, we, let's admit we were being teenagers. If you weren't very good at something you were and you got bad grades, you know, it wasn't like a badge of honour. It was quite embarrassing. And I always remember that. I remember one pupil, very, very clever girl, who I think she I think she did get like all A stars and A levels. But I remember in our English session she'd written something and the teacher read it out as an example of how good it was. And I remember another pupil sort of making a comment as he was reading it out, and the teacher really like stopping and, and you know admonishing the, this child, but kind of the class in general about this is no way to to sort of engage with someone who's done a good piece of work, and you know you shouldn't you should be we shouldn't shy away from praising it ability or something like worse that effect you know and i think that was the culture of the school it's like they were never going to let if someone was good they were going to be told about it and all and i think it just carried through so you know it was a good school anyway but i think that kind of helps you know the teachers almost have to take pride in it and know that they're maybe on a losing battle with some pupils or that the parents around them won't get buy-in but i think you know teachers kind of can set that tone can't they and it's an awkward story there but i, I can see why you wouldn't want to but it's nice that they at least try to recognize it but yeah i don't know it's not the right answer is there <laughs> mr watts was a hero don't get me wrong i, yeah. I like I, he's an amazing english teacher i also remember it because one of our classmates we had to you know when you're reading shakespeare around the table you know everyone has to read a line and she we were i think we were reading julius caesar and one girl shouted tyranny tyranny and obviously instead of tyranny and everyone laughed and then she threw a chair at mr watts and stormed out the classroom <laughs> and mr watts just went wasn't very nice to laugh. Um, <laughs> Sinead, that's not the other lady, this girl's name. Sinead, can you go and find this other girl and uh, see if she's okay? Just completely brushed off the fact that chair had just been lobbed <laughs> in his general direction. He was a, he was a heroic, a heroic man. Um, but yeah, I think that notion of wanting to be invisible, or not wanting to be invisible, but teenage years are quite tricky. And mm. I think when you're a certain kid who's trying to find their way and find out who they are, it's very tricky to have the spotlight on you. And yes, there was people who were at my school who were very like extrovert, but they weren't extrovert about their knowledge or about their learning. It was, they were extrovert maybe because of sport or because of um, singing or just mm. because they were funny. And yeah, the class clown, we had a few of those and he was very funny, um, but it was never, it was never learning as the focus. Yeah, being a, being a smart kid in a setting where you can't show off about it must be hard, having to hide your intelligence in a way. I'm just, I'm just waiting for Gronya to tell us about how she was the SWAT at school and, and had no... I mean, the word we used to use in primary school in year six, I mean, was boff. Were you the boff? <laughs> um, I think when I was at primary school, I just really loved... I loved everything. And I didn't really know that I was bad at maths until I got to secondary school and then I realized that there were lots of people who are much better than me and then then I realized I wasn't that great at maths but I still wasn't bad like I wasn't dreadful I was in the second top set for maths but then I was top set for everything else apart from RA RA I got put in the bottom set because I said oh my god too much were you in a catholic school yeah yeah see if so was I we had a problem where I remember Guy Pennington stood up in my class and, and talked about Jesus being on a sandbank rather than walking on water. And, <laughs> and, and then 
and then yeah, it all descended from there really into some sort of anarchy. Yeah, I was. We didn't. We weren't set Ferrari. I think we were all supposed to be top set Ferrari. <laughs> so <laughs> my a... my parents are both. I mean, we, we all went to church, religious family, but my parents would be very critical and were very interested in the the like reliability of the gospels and really interested in the history of it all. And I would go into school and I'd repeat stuff and I'd just get into so much trouble in my in my RE lessons. But I had, and you'll see on Twitter, he pops up all the time. And I hope he still listens to these podcasts, but my old head teacher, Mr. Whelan, um, will always make reference to the fact I used to always like hold him to account. I used to always go and, if, I, if he said something in an assembly that I didn't agree with, I would go and argue with him about it. I was just awful, really. What an irritating child. Like, so, so irritating. Self-appointed assembly ombudsman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Just that guy. Oh, Gwanya, you again. Mm. Um, well, we've, we've covered some distance here, haven't we? Yeah, we've, we gone have, from, yeah. <laughs> we've gone from catch-up to psychopaths to to uh, religious um, overseeing from <laughs> from what was probably like a 14-year-old. Yeah, precocious, yeah. <laughs> emo kid in uh in, in school at that time so yeah we covered some distance but do check out the podcast because um it's a fantastic interview and do read the digested version in the magazine as well um as dan always says you can find uh, my best teacher on all good and bad podcast platforms indeed. well if we are on bad podcast platforms i, I suppose we are but we have, we have not tried to get on them. we only what tried to get on the good a, ones what makes a podcast platform bad one of the ones I use doesn't remember where you were, and that is oh, incredibly frustrating. Mm. That that winds me up. It's like that might have been been Podbean. This when I'm listening to This American Life, and I've done some exercise, and I've got halfway through, and then I think oh, I'll listen to the second half of that, and you have to try and guess where you were. Mm. Uh, that mm. that is infuriating. But yes, we, again, we've digressed. It's a digressing podcast. This apologies, um, but. Do check out that podcast. Do check out Zos Feature. Do find out whether you're a psychopath or a sociopath and, and let us know if you are. And um, Oh, no, I've got things I need to say. Oh, Sorry. Uh, Christ, yeah. I'm doing the wrap-up. And, uh, and, and I, need to, I need to go. I've got a call now. Sorry. Oh, so do you not need keep me? Up. No, it's Dan fine. is exiting the podcast early. I'm going to go, okay? <laughs> okay. Dan's gone. All right, see ya. Go on, so, go. We had, we, last week we spoke about analogies. Yes. And I put on Twitter a, a request for people to talk about what their best analogies were that they used in school, and they sent them in to share on the podcast. So I was going to share them. Share away. We should have this audience participation. Go. So I will um, judge them. I will judge these analogies. Right. Gwen says that when she's teaching um, literature, she uses camera angles to explain the narration. So, for example, in Jekyll and Hyde, it's like a computer game with like over the shoulder where you, you see everything that the person what Utterson sees and goes through the story, but it's you're you're privy to more than what he is. That's very clever. That's good, That's isn't nice, it? Yeah, I like that one, yeah. And then another person I've put my phone on airplane mode so I can't here we go. Another person um said that when they're explaining about transition, they use um a burger as the analogy. From going from primary to secondary. <laughs> well, who's the burger? So the primary school is making the burger patty and then secondary school is like the bun and all the other fillings. Wow. Yeah, it I'm just not, made me hungry. I had burgers for dinner last night. I'm after not sure how, um, how vegan friendly that one is. You could have a, a meat-free patty. That's true. I, I don't, I, yeah, I'm, I don't I'm think not... that, that the meat's not an issue, is it? 
I don't know. I, I don't know if you've explained that one well enough for me. I think we're gonna have to go back to the source for that one. Okay, the she said the, 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 the source. No, she's not, written a blog it. about it. So she says the primary school is all about making the perfect burger patty and the burger bun and all the fillings. Oh, sorry, I've messed it up. I knew you had. Mm, so primary school is about making the perfect burger patty and the bun and all the fillings. And then secondary is about making it the entire meal with like chips and a dessert. I'm going See by the that, emojis. That. that makes more sense. But I think the secondary teachers won't like being called chips and pudding. Oh, I suppose that's because you see yourself as a steak and ale pie, so I could see why you find that insulting. But I wouldn't mind being chips and pudding. That sounds all right to me. Um, (laughs) Okay. Oh, this is a good one from Daniel Woodrow. He says that learning formal calculations straight away in maths is like a dentist giving you an injection, but then carrying out the work before it's taken effect. Sure, your filling's been done, but it could have been done so much better if they'd waited till you and the tooth were ready for it. And he uses that to explain to parents when they ask why that you can't learn maths in the same way as they learn it, which is great because the lovely Emma Cat is writing something for us about helping your parents understand your approach to maths and why that's just as important as teaching the children. I like that one. I like that. And I think it's a good one, a isn't it? Of, and it's a, it's a reality check, isn't it? We all need a bit of a reality check at the moment. Um, so yes, do keep sending stuff in for the podcast and, and Gronya will share it and Dan will try and stick around next time. <laughs> he, he, he's a very busy man. Such he, a busy he's man. Got, he's got celebrities to interview. He's probably on the phone to Tom Hardy right now to smoothing things over after you said he was unattractive. I didn't um, say he was unattractive. I'm objecting sort of, to the objectification. Sort of did, um, but tune in next week and we'll we'll have more more Tom Hardy bashing from Gronje. We'll have <laughs> and, and the discussion of next week's magazine, where the cover feature is about vaccines. See you next week. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.